Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jason Moore, welcome back again to the Duocast. As usual, it's uh, awesome to be here, man. So we're here to talk about Kylie Rothfield. What a talented soul she is. She was really fun to talk to. Yeah. First of all, Kylie used, even though it was a remote interview via Zoom, she used her own mic and recorded into her own separate channel, which made it sound like we were in the same room together. It did. It sounded really clear. We had great audio, and I love that because the Zoom audio is, I mean, even the best podcasters, the most popular podcasters out there today are still using Zoom because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I think people are getting used to the lower quality audio yeah. and tolerant of it at least. But I still like to have that nice buttery audio if I can do it. If you can get it, if you can get somebody that can do it, it makes all the difference in the world. It does. There are certain guests who really shine when it comes to nuggets of wisdom. Right. Some guests are uh, a little more rambly. It's hard to find those concise nuggets. Mm -hmm. Listening to Kylie's interview, she's only 28 years old, but she has all of this life experience and and wisdom, and she's able to distill it down into really helpful chunks of information. Yeah. And I, what I appreciate about her is that she talks about things that I'm naturally curious about, the songwriting process, mm-hmm. and how it's different in Nashville versus Los Angeles, how you, how you split up the royalties for songs. Right. And Nashville, even if you're sitting in the same room and looking at your phone and not contributing to the songwriting process, you still get an equal cut. Right, because you were part of the, you're kind of part of the experience here, and that it's kind of the atmosphere of the whole song. Right? right, they they wouldn't have written that same song without you, mm-hmm. even though you may not have contributed objectively. But the fact that you were there was a contribution, and I found that to be really kind of a bohemian way of dealing with songwriting royalties. Well, I actually like that idea. Me too. You know, in fact, when one of my first bands, when we started writing songs, that was kind of the thing I laid on the table. Was like, okay, we're all putting our own stuff, whether I bring the song to you or so-and-so brings the song in, we're all making this thing gel. Yeah. So we're splitting it four ways. And I got some disagreement from a couple of the other people in the band, but we ended up doing it that way. And we never sold records anyway. But what I'm saying is when we did sell stuff, we all split it up. Yeah. I think that's also a good way to make sure everybody feels a little bit of pressure to contribute. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to sit there looking at your phone if you know that, hey, I'm getting an equal cut here. I better do my part. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like you're more of a Nashville guy than a Los Angeles guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the Los, Los Angeles folks are more a little more cutthroat, it sounds It's like. more like, fuck you, I wrote that song. Yeah. But going back to Kylie Rothfield, as you say, she's got a beautiful voice. She's uber talented mm. from the standpoint that she writes her own songs and at a very young age made her way onto the world stage through The Voice and Songland show, the reality television show about a songwriting competition, and uh, has made some incredible connections. But her, her practical advice that she provides, I, I just think it's one of those episodes that's going to endure and be one of our most popular and most downloaded episodes of all time. I think that's so my too. prediction. I think so. Yeah. So Jason, uh, this is being recorded after it has been announced that Biden won 
but before Trump has indicated that he will concede. In fact, where we're at right now is that he said he will not concede and he's going to fight this in court. Mm-hmm. Putting aside the politics of you know what's happening currently and what may happen and unfold in the next week or so, what was it like for you over the last couple of days to watch the vote counts come in and realize that Trump was very likely not going to be reelected, number one, but more importantly, that uh, we are going to have a female vice president and African-American and Indian-American vice president as well. Uh, well, you know, I had to kind of walk away from it for a while. I mean, I had CNN on and I kept flipping back and forth between that and Fox News and just to get the different kind of takes yeah. you know, on, on the feel of how things were going. And I'm just not much of a, po- a political guy. Like this is the first year I think I've ever really paid attention to politics. Uh, well, at least in the last four years or so, because I really am not a fan of Donald Trump. I don't think he's a great leader and I don't think he was a good president, but I'm also not totally sold on Biden. You know what I mean? It was, right. it was kind of a thing that I had to really make a decision. You know, do I want to vote third party on this? Do I want, or, you know, do I want to do what's right and not throw my vote away? Right. In my opinion. So I think it's great that we have a female African-American, half Indian American vice president. I think that's probably the, the coolest thing of this whole thing. Right. Kamala Harris. I'm with you. I, I, I was not a big fan of Biden. I, I mean, I'm not against Biden and no. I certainly supported him. I donated to him. I uh, voted for him, obviously. And for me, over the last couple of days, I think the, the biggest takeaway has been that there's a sense of collective trauma that the nation has been through because of the, the norms that have been changed, right? because of the change of tone, because of the nastiness, the attacks, the misinformation, the disinformation, the, the fact that there's, there's new rules set by the GOP that you know, whatever they can do, whatever they have the power to do, they're going to do yep. if it helps their party. And it, it's been a disheartening four years for me because I am into politics. And um, I don't like to be into politics, but I feel when it's important and necessary, I have to be engaged. Right. So I am. But I really do long for the days of politics being boring. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days. I, you know, when, when Bush was elected in 2000, uh, when Clinton was elected in 92 and 96, uh, when, when uh, Obama was elected in 2008, I was engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, and when Obama was elected, that, I mean, I cried, you know, first African-American president uh, in 2008, and uh, so eloquent and so articulate, and it was like, you know, I was ready for that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I rarely paid attention to the day-to-day workings of the political process after frankly, after Bush was elected both times and same thing with Obama. I mean, I, I just appreciate the fact that there are political wonks mm-hmm. who deal with that shit. <laughs> it's like they pay attention to it. They love it. They thrive on it. And why, why do we have to distract ourselves every single day? But with Donald Trump, for me, it was like every day was, and this is, may, may seem like an exaggeration, a nightmare. Yeah, you never knew what he was going to say or do next. Every day, there was something new that he would do or say that was vile, it was inappropriate, it was norm-violating, it was shocking. And not only that, it was incorrect, most of it. And, and false, yeah, just creating, spinning false narratives. And then to see all of his supporters 
completely ignoring all of these horrific, objectively awful things that he was doing and saying. It gave me a sense of hopelessness. Yeah. So where I'm at today is I feel a real sense of hope that even though, yeah, the election was close, it was a lot closer than I wanted it to be. And I think it, it's a lot closer than it should have been, morally speaking. Right. But the fact that Biden got a huge popular vote uh, win and also won the Electoral College pretty decisively, uh, same amount of votes or same amount of Electoral College votes that Trump got in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, there is a sense of hope there. Um, yet there's also this feeling, especially if we don't win the Senate, there's a feeling that Mitch McConnell is going to continue to take the oppositional stance that he has taken for the last four years. Ter- Actually, I shouldn't say the last four years. It's, it's the last you know, 20 years. But yeah. certainly when, when Obama tried to appoint judges, Mitch McConnell would not let that happen. Yeah. And uh, same thing with the Supreme Court justice pick. Uh, Merrick Garland stole that seat, didn't allow him to be appointed. And as a result, now we have three Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices, which I think is a travesty. Uh, yep. um, so this went a lot deeper than I was hoping uh, on this duo cast talking about politics, but that's where I've been. I've been really, really deep diving on the news in an unhealthy way, watching news just incessantly 24-7, waking up, looking at my phone. But there is a sense of relief and hope that maybe come January on Inauguration Day, we can wake up and not have the first thing that we do, look at our phone, freaked out, wondering what the hell is next, what right. is coming next. I know. Like, let them just do their boring ass shit, all right? Run the country the most boring way you can, please, <laughs> God. Um, so I think that's what I've been really looking forward to. I'm reluctant to talk about it just because uh, when this thing airs, I mean, what day, we'll just let our, the, the people know, what day is it today? It's uh, Sunday, November... November 8th. November 8th. Yeah, so it's Sunday, November 8th. You and I have listened to the Kylie Rothfield interview, Mm -hmm. and it is about to launch. So it's about to launch uh, on Wednesday. Yep. So we've already heard it. Yeah, so a lot could change in the next week. We don't know what's going to happen in the next two weeks to two months, you know, with all of the political stuff. So two weeks from now, it can be a completely different monster. Well, we could be in the middle of a civil war. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a bad that's a bad thing to think about, but it's true. Do you have any muskets? <laughs> <laughs> Musket. We need we need to get some muskets for the civil war that's coming. We do, and put a bayonet on the end of it. Right. No, I don't. I don't have anything like that. No, we'll be. What are we going to be? What are they called? Conscientious objectors. That's that's about what I am. I'm not going to get involved in any war. No, no, I I don't think it's going to happen here. <laughs> Bigger cities are going to have some problems. They're already starting to have clash, but yeah. nothing violent yet. It's just arguing and yelling. And, yeah. You, you know. know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully the, the Republican advisors tell Trump to do what's right. Well, as of today, there's a few of them telling him to yeah. concede, including his wife. Yeah, I don't believe that. You know? I don't know. Some of that stuff about Melania and Jared Kushner, I, I just don't believe it's like, oh, confidential source says that Melania is advising Trump to, re, you know, concede. Eh, I don't see it because then you read her, her tweets mm. and it's, it's contradictory. So the bottom line is I don't trust anything coming out of the White House, whether it's a confidential source or not. I just don't trust it because it's a source of uh, misinformation. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad that it has to be like that. Yeah. Honestly. All right, so we'll see if this makes it into the duo cast or not. That was really kind of a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> so, brother, we're still in a pandemic, and it looks like things are getting worse. I saw that. It's spiking. Yeah. The, the largest number of coronavirus diagnoses in a single day, setting a record every single day over the last three days. Right. What are the numbers? Do you know? Oh, it's well over 100,000. Oh, my God. 120, 130,000, something like that. Wow. Yeah, so uh, you know we're we're gonna have to buckle up. It's gonna be a tough winter, and we may have to uh, go back to doing these duo casts remotely. Yeah, uh, just to be safe. But you know, it, I, I'm starting to develop an attitude which is accepting of where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was resisting for a while, and it was hard for me. And I think this is kind of the the male part of me, right? Mm-hmm. We all have a little bit of female in us, a little bit of male in terms of our genetic tendencies, right? Yeah. And I think genetically, men are not as accepting of reality as women are. I agree. Right? And so that's why we don't like going to the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. We don't want to know what's going on in there. (laughs) That's, well, yeah. And I feel like my check engine line has been on for about five years. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Case in point, Jason Moore, you know, I mean- (laughs) He's, he is a good example, and, and I'm the same way. We want to pretend that everything's okay. Well, I mean, if you feel good, right? You feel fine. Right. That's And, and you can do the same thing in a pandemic. You can like look around, you're like, okay, I'm, I haven't gotten sick yet, and um, you, know, you can't see this virus, and it can't be as bad as they're saying it is, right? And so you know, we have these voices in our head that are very male-centric sort of denials of reality. Yeah. And I feel like I'm starting to come around and I'm starting to accept where we're at, which is that we are in this for the long haul. Um, the, the virus has changed the world in ways that, you know, we can put judgment on, we can say it's good or bad or awful or horrific, but I think putting labels on it is not really that productive. No. Like you can say, okay, well, this is awful. Okay, well, where does that get you? Like, what are you going to do with this situation? Well, we're going to have to figure out a way to stay inside more often and to find ways to become fulfilled without going out into the world as often. At the same time, we have to support local restaurants and local businesses so that they can continue to keep people employed. We have to support musicians who are not able to go out and perform. We have to support venues like iconic venues in Seattle, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in New York, in Miami. Like with uh, Kylie Rothfield was concerned about the Troubadour. Exactly. Yeah. All of these venues that have been around for decades that rely upon acts, you know, bands coming in and playing and selling out shows or at least filling half of the the venue, selling drinks, whatever. We're going to lose a lot of those venues if we don't figure out a way to support them. We're going to lose a lot of small businesses. People are going to go bankrupt. Uh, They're going to lose their houses. They're going to lose their livelihoods unless we come together as a country, accept where we're at, and do the responsible thing by social distancing and trying to stamp down this virus, but also at the same time keeping all of these businesses alive as long as possible. It's going to be very difficult, you know, for a lot of those businesses. And inevitably some of them are just going to 
have to do that. They're just going to have to close. So you're right. We need to find a way to collectively keep supporting those venues, the artists that are giving up, filing for unemployment and saying, well, I'm going to do something else now. You know, And it's a shame because there's a lot of talented people out there that were just getting started that are not doing it now. Right. So what are they going to do? And then artists that have been doing it all their life that aren't doing it now too. So what's really scary for me, I mean, I, I have a legal job by day. Okay. It's an essential service. I'm not worried about my own job, mm -hmm. but you look at creatives and what do creatives do, whether they're musicians or they're actors or aspiring actors, what do they do when they don't have work in their creative field? They usually go to the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. They become waiters or hostesses or you know maybe short order cooks or whatever. Our restaurants are going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. They can't stay open with half capacity or quarter capacity or whatever the lockdown requirements are going to be at any given moment. So their ability, the musicians and the creative community's ability to survive has really been hampered by the pandemic because taking it's taking away their venues, it's taken away their ability to perform, and it's also taken away the freaking restaurant industry, which is their backup plan. Mm -hmm. So it's a scary time for America, and it's a scary time for the creative community. But um, I have hope that we're going to get through this, especially now that we have someone who is going to be taking office in January who actually cares about science. Well, he talked about putting together a coronavirus task force, so, right. which is something that Trump wouldn't do. He well, was, he has one, but it's run by Pence, yeah, who has let the coronavirus run rampant through the freaking White House. I know. I mean, he can't even keep his own White House safe right. from the virus. So, <laughs> and and they don't, you know, they don't listen to Fauci. They don't that's, listen to Burks. That's kind of what I meant about Trump is that you know the people that are appointed, he just he doesn't listen to them anyway. So yeah, he doesn't. There might as well not be one. Right. Exactly. You know. So, man, it's hard not to get pulled into the political discussion, no, it's, isn't it? It's, it's in the air, man. Yeah. You know, it's something that we can't avoid, really, right now. Mm -hmm. It's pretty unfortunate. When you go out, you wear a mask? Absolutely. Yeah. 100% of the time. I think that is probably the most important sort of takeaway of this, is that we really do have to collectively keep a mask on us at all times and wear it when you go out in public. Yeah. Anytime you're around people in the store, restaurants, whatever, you need to wear it. I, you know, I, I used to give Yakima a hard time because we had a bunch of anti-maskers here and we still do. We do. But I'm actually really surprised lately to see most people are wearing masks and they're wearing them properly. Yeah. They're putting it over their nose as well. Finally. So <laughs> there's a lot of dick noses out there. <laughs> Initially, they're just putting it over their mouth. Yeah. Uh, or just not wearing their mask at all in Yakima because of our, our political makeup here. You see, you see it still. Yeah. But, but most of the time especially in restaurants and in grocery stores, people are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's such, you know, it, it gives me hope for humanity when I see people coming together and doing the thing that is not always easy to do. Mm -hmm. If you're, um, you have never worn a mask in your life because you're not in the medical profession, wearing a mask to the gas station or the grocery store, it's awkward. It feels weird. It does. And some people feel self-conscious about it. Now, I embraced it right from the beginning because I trusted the science. And I get the Johns Hopkins newsletter every single day, and I read all the articles about what's working and what isn't. And masks have consistently been the number one recommendation. Yeah. Social distance, keep your distance, and masks. 
and not seeing a lot of social distancing happening in grocery stores. No. But at least they're wearing masks. Well, I mean, the political gatherings last night were crazy. People were wearing their masks, but they're like two inches apart. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it was irresponsible. I mean, I get the jubilation and they, they deserve to celebrate. But to see them so close and kind of letting their guard down for, for coronavirus, it's, um, it's a little bit disheartening because yeah, you know there's, you know there's going to be some spread as a result of those celebrations. Yep. Yeah. But same thing with the Trump rallies. I mean, people get really enthusiastic about something and they just forget about the fact that we're living in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so have you been watching or reading anything uh, interesting or compelling lately? No, I no, I'm kind of regular TV kind of guy once in a while. Big Bang Theory stuff like that. Two and a half men watching reruns of that. Pretty funny show. Um so you're going you're kind of going nostalgic. Yeah. You're going back in time. Yeah. 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 I like the old shows. You know, that's funny because I've been doing a little bit of that myself. I I've been rewatching The Office and I rewatched The Office um start to finish. Uh-huh season one through whatever season nine about every couple of years and i started that again and i think it's a no i think it's a sign of needing to go for something that's familiar and comforting Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe that's just where we're at you and i right now we need comfort food Mm -hmm. but the the food is is actually content (laughs) we need comfort content right and that means going back to those shows that we find uh, funny and we we know what we're going to get Yep. It's not something new that we're trying to figure out if we like or not. We know we like these shows. Yeah. Uh, another show that runs all the time is Seinfeld. I, I, I still think that is a gem of a show. You know, the writing on that show is just absolutely wonderful. Have you ever watched Curb Your Enthusiasm? No. Okay. Yeah. If you like Seinfeld, mm-hmm. I think you'd really like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It, it's Larry David who created Seinfeld. Right. And okay. George's character was actually based upon Larry David. That's right. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he created this show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. There might be 10 seasons or something like that. There's quite a few seasons, but wow. But it's brilliant. It's, it's very Seinfeld-esque, okay. but it's, um, it's different. But anyway, yeah, if you, if you can hop on uh, HBO and check out Curb Your Enthusiasm, I think you'll like it. I think I'll check it out. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been watching a show called Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Hmm. And Queen's Gambit is about a chess champion, okay. a female chess champion from the 1950s and 60s. Hmm. And it sounds boring, right? Mm-hmm. Chess, I, I'm a chess aficionado. I love chess. Hmm. And I play with a couple of friends throughout the country uh, and my cousin, Kaysen, too. But I have this game on my phone where you make a chess move and then it sends a notification to the person you're playing with and they make a move. And I've been doing that for years. Nice. I started watching this show because it was all over Twitter that it was one of the best new shows on Netflix. So I started watching it with uh, my youngest daughter and my, my wife, and it's, um, it, it's beautiful. It is beautifully shot. Hmm. It's well acted. It actually is pretty compelling and suspenseful when you're watching these chess games. I don't know how they do it because hmm. chess just sounds like the most boring subject matter for any sort of television series, especially one that goes on for you know, seven or eight episodes per season and it might even have a second season. Wow. But yeah, there's, there's romance, there's um, you know, family dynamics and drama that kind of give it some flair that um, 
you wouldn't expect out of like a chess drama. <laughs> so I just, I never even thought of the concept of a chess drama. It's very bizarre that I'm actually into this thing. Wow. Um, and so is my family and they don't like chess. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I've ever played chess. You mean, you know, you'll have to teach me how to play it because it looks like it's like watching grass grow to me. Oh, dude. No, chess is, chess is a game that I've been playing for pretty consistently for like the last 20 years. And I started on a website called GameNot, G-A-M-E-K-N-O-T.com. Okay. And I had an account that allowed me to have like a hundred games going at any given time. <laughs> wow. So you could play like speed chess with, that was timed on a clock. You could play three-day games, which is you know, three days to make one move. You can play one-day games. You can play 14-day games where you have 14 days to make a move. So they're really long games. Mm. But you can play grandmasters. You can play people of all different skill levels on this website. Then around Christmas, uh, about 18 years ago, I uploaded a new avatar to GameNot, mm -hmm. and it was an avatar of a drunk Santa Claus <laughs> with a liquor bottle, and he was in an alleyway with a liquor bottle like empty and just kind of to the side of, of the, the Santa, and somebody reported it as oh, inappropriate, no. and I got banned from oh, no. GameNot.com. It wasn't that one I sent you with the Santa with the hat over his penis was it <laughs> i don't i don't think so okay this was like 18 years ago so I, I would feel guilty no no that that's another one that i don't think i would have posted that on any <laughs> on any gaming sites but that sucks man yeah so um you can tell i'm still pretty bitter about it yeah but what i did is i made the best of it and i went to a new platform called chess.com okay and that's what i play right now on my phone is chess.com so anybody wants to play on chess.com send me a game invite my handle is BG Smitty. It's B G S M I T T Y. You're pretty competitive about it, aren't you? Well, I don't know if you call it competitive. I, I mean, if, if you're playing a game, you want to win. Sure. But I, I don't take it that seriously. Okay. And I'm not that good, but it's, you know, I've, I've played probably thousands of games at this point. So I'm better than a beginner, but I don't think I'll ever be close to being a grandmaster. I just remember seeing chess tournaments on TV and it's like hours before anybody makes a move kind of a thing. It seems like they'll just stare at it, <laughs> you know, strategically thinking in their brain and then make a move. And then everybody's just like, oh, you know, it's like, I don't know. I just never really got into chess, but that show sounds interesting. Yeah. They play usually speed chess, which means it's timed. Okay. So they have a clock. And, and I've seen that too. Makes it a little more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a book I've been reading lately is the 80-20 management book by Richard Koch, who's a British billionaire mm. who wrote this book about how to manage your time, basically. Okay. And it's a kind of an eye-opening book for me because I do manage people at my law firm and I manage my own time. Um, but the whole concept of the 80-20 book, and it's, I don't know that Richard Koch invented this necessarily or came up with this concept. I don't think he did, but there's this concept in economics and um, just in human behavior that 20% of the work that we do at any given time is responsible for about 80% of the output. Hmm. So in a law firm context, 20% of the cases I work on are responsible for 80% of the revenue. Okay. And that conversely means that 80% of the stuff that you do and focus on every single day is only responsible for about 20% of whatever your revenue is. Oh, okay. 
um, let's take that concept to friends. About 20% of your friend group is responsible for about 80% of your personal fulfillment in terms of your friends. In other words, 20% of the people that are in your friend group are the people that you really care about. Uh, Yeah, that's probably true. Right? So in the economy, the way you would look at an 80-20 principle is about 20% of the folks in this country own about 80% of the wealth. That sounds about right. Right. And that's just, it, it doesn't really change from country to country. That's just the way economies work. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing in America is kind of a, a grotesque distortion of those uh, statistics to the point where it's like 1% of the population owns like 99% of the wealth. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why we're, that's why we're not doing very well as an economy right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few really big winners, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, yep. uh, and there's a bunch of losers. Me. You and me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm reading that book by Richard Koch, and, and I just started following him on Twitter, and, and he started following me. So um, I've been engaging with him a bit, and I'm going to try to read more of his stuff. He's, he's an interesting guy. I don't think he is someone politically that I'm aligned with at all. He seems to be pretty pro Boris Johnson. Oh, okay. which is kind of that Trumpian figure over there. Yeah. I think he's pro Brexit from what I can tell, but you know, putting politics aside, he's he's a brilliant brilliant guy and has is a self-made guy too. He's made billions and billions of dollars through investing in businesses and so it's been nice to kind of like read a little bit, do some things other than focus on, you know, the death scroll of Twitter and <laughs> And the, the rabbit hole of, of just watching TV incessantly looking for election results. Yeah. Um, so I try to do that as much as I can. Yeah, this has been a real political podcast in a lot of ways because we rarely ever talk about politics. I know. Yeah. And then we, I don't think we plan to. No, I, think I don't. No, I don't want to. I, my hope is that we can really turn a new page here mm-hmm. and just start getting back to the old Jason and Brian that aren't obsessed with politics. Yeah. And I, well, and I'm not obsessed with it, but. I'm also very, you know, kind of dumb about most of it. And so I'm not a political analyst at all. So I don't feel comfortable going into a big, long political thing, but I do have my opinions and stuff and I do vote. Right. You know, going back to the issue of nostalgic watching of movies and television, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you mentioned that you were watching older television shows and I've been watching in addition to the office, old movies Oh yeah, and trying to, to watch classic old movies. Dallas Buyers Club is something I watched recently with um, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I've seen that. I think he won an Oscar for that. I think so, yeah. I listened to his interview on Mark Maron, WTF podcast, and I was like, you know what? I need to go back and watch Dallas Buyers Club. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I'm glad I did because it's a powerful film. You know, true story about this guy who became kind of a renegade when it came to helping AIDS patients. Mm Mm-hmm. In the 1980s and early 90s. Another movie I watched recently is Into the Wild with Emile Hirsch. Okay. And that's another true story. A guy that graduated from college in Georgia and I think it was Emory University and just kind of burned his driver's license. He gave away all of his cash. I think he had 24 grand saved up and he just gave it away to some charitable organization, hitchhiked all over the country and went to Alaska. Wow. And a spoiler alert. He died. Um, so John, is that the one where he ate the wrong plants? Yeah, he ate the wrong plants. Yep. He he got he he's very naive, knew nothing about survival, 
in the wilderness. He just had this concept, this romantic idea of what Alaska would be and surviving off of the land. Yeah. And um, I shouldn't be laughing because it's sad. It is. it's It's a sad movie, but it's a true story. And it's based upon a book by, I think John Krakauer wrote the book, if I'm not mistaken. It's um, great acting. Emile Hirsch is in it. Vince Vaughn is in it. Catherine Keener's in it. Anyway, a lot of great acting in that film. And uh, it's just nice to go back to movies that you know are good. Mm-hmm. And it's actually hard to find new content now anyway, because the movie industry has been shut down for so long. Well, yeah, not only that, but it seems like all the movies they're putting out are just like rehashed versions of old movies. So, yeah. yeah, there's nothing that impressive that's coming out these days. Although I am going to interview the director of a movie that I'm excited to see. I was just sent a screener on it. The movie is called The Nest, hmm. and it premiered at Sundance this year, and I wasn't able to see it at Sundance. So, the uh, production company was kind enough to send me a screener, and I will be interviewing the director of that film, Sean Durkin in the next week or two. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So there is new content out there, Mm -hmm. but this particular movie was filmed before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, and it premiered at Sundance. But um, yeah, the the content is just not that impressive that's coming out post-pandemic. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm going back to these older films. And another one I watched recently is Moneyball with Brad Pitt. I can't remember if I've seen that. It seems like I have, but... Moneyball is, a, is another true story. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I'm gravitating toward these biopics and these true stories, but, yeah. but Brad Pitt plays uh, Billy Bean, who is a retired professional baseball player. Right. Okay. Uh, who is working for the Oakland A's and the Oakland A's lost Giambi, lost, uh, I think Jason Giambi was his name and, uh-huh. they, and uh, you know, Hall of Fame player probably, but they, they lost him because they didn't have the money to keep him. Right. And so the whole concept of the book, it was originally a book. And then it turned into a movie. The whole concept was that Billy Bean, uh, working with a character played by Jonah Hill, approached recruitment of baseball players in a completely different way mm. because they, they didn't have the money to get the big name players right. who had the great stats. And so they used this mathematical model created by an economist played by Jonah Hill to pick up players that nobody else wanted. <laughs> and it's really interesting because I was watching Moneyball again this weekend. And one of the baseball players, the main baseball players they talk about, keep in mind, this is a true story, uh-huh. is Scott Hatterberg. Hmm. And Scott Hatterberg went to Eisenhower High School, where I went to high school. Oh, yeah. And okay. his little brother, Jeff, I grew up with. Right. So he was, I think Scott was two years older than me. And Jeff, um, his little brother, was my age. So I saw Jeff all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I remember he made it to the big leagues and was playing for Boston. And I never really followed his career. And apparently this movie, Moneyball, picks up where Scott Hatterberg was injured, didn't have uh, a lot of prospects because his elbow had nerve damage and he wasn't able to throw Mm. as a catcher anymore. So they turned him into a first baseman. His character is played by Chris Pratt. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. So it was, uh, it's interesting to watch movies where real life characters are people that you know. <laughs> that is weird. Yeah. So it's kind of strange. You know, hails from Yakima, Washington. Nice. Anyway, so yeah, I, I think I'm going to be spending 2021 watching older content like you. That's, that's what I predict. Good. Yeah. No, it's a good stuff. So anyway, my friend, uh, what do we have coming up next? Uh, an interview with a guy by the name of Darren Bruce. Darren Bruce. Uh, we talked a while back, and I can't remember when the interview was. But what I do remember is that guy is a live wire. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he is very animated, very charismatic, and super fun to talk to. Yeah. He has opinions, and (laughs) he's not afraid to express those opinions. (laughs) And so it was a very spirited conversation about content and copyright law. And this guy is uh, a producer of a show called The DJ Sessions, which is a a YouTube and I think a Twitch channel as well. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a facilitator for live DJ performances that get streamed, and he talks about the logistics of getting the rights to using songs in a DJ context right? and putting on performances. And I, the whole DJ world is something I knew very little about. Yeah, I don't, I don't know much about it. Yeah, the only thing I really knew about DJs was from a documentary I saw on Steve Aoki, who is a famous DJ, mm-hmm. and his father owned Benny Hanna's restaurant. Right. So it was nice to talk to somebody about a creative space I literally knew nothing about going in, but I came away pretty educated. Well, I think the, I think the listeners are going to enjoy the video too, because I think he uses like a back screen. Oh yeah. Like a green screen. Yeah. And- if you want to watch the YouTube video version of it. Yeah. Good guy. Fun talk. Seems like a good interview. Yeah. Well, this has been a quite a lengthy discussion, and I think there was a lot to process and take in, given that we're wrapping up a hotly contested election, right? and we're heading into a pretty dark winter, it looks like, from a COVID standpoint. It sure does. But Brother Jason, uh, thank you for sitting down with me and connecting again. It's been fun. Thanks for having me over, Brian. All right, brother. We'll see you. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>